Well, I told you that I'd eventually have to record a podcast at the top of the moor in wind and snow, and today that day has arrived. Uh, I'm on the top of Tintwistle-Nar, and uh, as you can probably tell, this is not the best place to record a podcast. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go find shelter, um, and then you, you will get to hear what we've actually come all the way up here to talk about. Um, let the theme music roll up whilst we go and find maybe a bit of a dip in the heather to hide from some of the wind. If I just turn around here, that's the wind and the snow coming to hit my face. Just be glad that wherever you're listening, you may be a little bit warmer and drier. Well, I ended last episode talking about the description of uh, the Savage Mountain and uh, a Manchester Guardian um, article once describing uh, this as a scene from King Lear. And it appears that uh, I may have summoned the weather gods to turn on us as, uh, well, today um, we're sat just uh, in a dip and tint whistle now we've hiked um from armfield farm and uh it's one of those days where most people will probably look outside and say nah i think i'll stay in the warm but i couldn't be in more capable hands uh because i have to say i probably wouldn't bother doing this kind of walk on this kind of weather day with the snow all around us so uh yeah gloves are definitely on this time but i'm with alan clark who co-wrote um, a book which was the UK Walker's Guide to Aircraft Racks and then also you're a volunteer for Glossop Mountain Rescue which right now is pretty handy I've got to say Alan um, you kind of know where you're going <laughs> I mean like this would be the type of walk that surely you'd say people don't come out on <laughs> well it don't come out unless you're well prepared for it and you're expecting to get a bit cold and miserable on the hill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're joined um, by um, Alan's friend Phil as well, who's sat just uh, having his lunch. Yep. Got the sandwiches out? Yeah, he's happy man. Um, Alan, we, we picked this particular area to walk because, I mean, you, as part of the book, um, researched um, all of the crashes which happened in the Peak District, of which... All I know is that there are many, like we're talking hundreds, mostly crashes that happened over the Second World War. I mean, for the people who don't know about that, I mean, have I got that kind of summed up right? Yeah, so from the mid-1930s up until the mid-1950s, there were just short of 200 aircraft incidents in and around the Peak District National Park. Wow. Uh, Most of them were in those few wartime years. Mm -hmm. Not all of them were crashes as such there were instances where someone got lost and landed a plane in a field and uh, that would get recorded but the hill that we're on today is uh, where five well six aircraft crashed uh, from uh, well 1944 through until the early 1950s I mean, I this this is not really going to work, but I've got a book and a piece of paper that tells us I've kind of put together a bit of a grid, which I will pin to um, our map on LondonDaleTales.co.uk, where um, 
It has all the, the names of um, the crew members that were involved in these crashes, uh, whether they were killed, whether they survived, um, and various different accounts. I mean, one of the things that I guess you found interesting, if that's the right word, when you did your book, which is much more recent than, say, some of the other books which were published, say, 70s, 80s, you had a little bit more access to, say, the military archives than perhaps the people writing the books in the 70s did, where it was still classified information. Yeah, that that's quite correct. Uh, when we did our book in 2008, we did have a lot more access to records. I mean, I suppose we should be, say, the obvious thing here, that if you are looking to come and visit these sites... You know, as Alan mentioned before, be prepared. Even on a summer's day, you know, it's not one for your your brand new white trainers. You maybe need walking boots, take some food, some water, because, you know, the the weather here can change so quickly, and it, it's no surprise that this is a place where planes would crash. I mean, there is a plane above us right now, but and we are on the flight path. But I would hope that things have changed and technology helps. I mean, it, you know, during wartime as well it was much more difficult to find out about the reports. I mean, I have access to, say, you know, the articles that were in Glossop Chronicle and and there are some of the photos that we can see from the police reporters, but there was a blackout on reporting crashes in the Second World War instant. There was. uh, Censorship was enforced uh, during the Second World War, so there was nothing in any newspapers. Mm. So we were reliant entirely on official records. Yeah. Uh, squadron record books, uh, accident record cards, and where they still exist, actual accident reports. Yeah, I mean, actually just seeing some of the, the many books, I, I really geeked out quite heavily on this. I you know, saw your book, I saw you know, Ron Collier did a couple of different books, two, a, a part one and a part two. Um, you know, there was information of like, you know, who the people were on board, the crash reports, um, you know, there's there's just so much. And I suppose some people would say that it's quite morbid going and finding crash sites where people died. I mean, how do you respond to that? I couldn't really disagree with them as such. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's one aspect of our history that's quite easily overlooked. Mm. Uh, going around visiting them, researching them, it keeps that in our like collective memory. Yeah, true. That is very true. And, you know... And it is illegal to take away any parts that you find on site. Um, you know, Ministry of Defence say you are breaking the law if you take parts away. I suppose, you know, when a lot of the crashes happened, the snow was coming right in my face. Um, when a lot of the crashes um, happened, people didn't know that. So some of the wreckages were cleared off the moors straight away. Yeah, so at the time they were, they were cleared fairly well. Mm. Uh, the legal protection came into force much later. Uh, it was in 1986 when an Act of Parliament was passed called the Protection of Military Remains Act that made it illegal to remove any items of military remains uh, from aircraft crash sites or shipwrecks. Mm. And it's that act that uh, the military aircraft on the hills are protected by. Gosh. I mean, I've kind of picked out four different sites just, you know, within the area where we are and uh, before we started recording um, we went and wreckied um, some of those sites didn't we We wrecked two of them and uh, it was no mean feat going and finding them really you had a compass you came here some 20 years ago so you kind of had an idea of what you were looking for but even then when we eventually found them it was one where we were kind of wandering up and down and around there was a new fence that disoriented us 
um, that we took photos of how it looked 20 years ago and how it looked today. And you were amazed about how much the land has changed around here. Yeah, the, the Lancaster crash site in particular, uh, when we first visited it 20 years ago, was on like exposed rock with peat banks around it. I then visited it again a few years later and it was all grassed over. Mm. And I was expecting it still to be in a grassy area, but it's not. It's within an area of heather that was uh, about a foot, foot and a half deep. Yeah, and there was all sphagnum moss all around, you know, was grown in the peat. So, you know, it just shows how different this landscape is, um, you know, how it's always changing. So the... Uh, one of the things I I am no military expert, and I guess one of the very helpful things in your book is you put all the abbreviations, you put the different roles in the REF, because I really uh, crudely wouldn't know the difference between a flight sergeant and a you know a lieutenant. Um, how how do you kind of educate yourself on all of this? Uh, it's the sort of thing that you you pick up as you go along. Hmm. Uh, I did have the advantage of I've spent I was a cadet for a couple of years so you, you were taught what the different military rank structures were okay. so I was in the sea cadet so we were taught the naval rank structure but you also had to know what the army and the air force rank structures were in case you ever ran into anyone <laughs> and you, you didn't offend them I mean see the most I know is that uh, firefighters different coloured helmets means different levels of authority that's as much as my knowledge goes but um, how did you get into this because you are from this area and you happen to pick up well one of the books which is on my lap which is probably melting in the snow actually as we speak but you're from this area and, and what you know you kind of got an understanding of this from a young age I understand yeah so I w- it was while I was still at school uh, my mum bought me a copy of uh, one of Ron Collier's books. I mean, it's a bit of a weird present, isn't it? Hey, here's a book of plane crashes. Yeah, so I was I was into planes, and I had started doing a little bit of walking through school, uh, which is where I know Phil from. Uh, yeah, so she bought this book for Christmas, and I said, can we go and visit some of these sites? So we did, and then we visited some more, and we visited some more, and 500 and something crash sites later across the uk so if anyone was going to write you know or co-write a, a uk uh air wrecked guide for walkers i think it is, is you were kind of uh ushered into that by your mom then i guess yeah you could say that <laughs> she certainly started it i think she regrets it i mean you know just looking into some of the stories both you know from from your book and also ron collier's um i'm trying to like this paper is going to disintegrate as we do this interview I think um you know the the let me just try and pick there was one that particular jumped out to me which was the two Belgian lads um hang on a second the two no there were there were two Belgian lads and a British um pilot and actually it just over the other side of where we're sat uh, there's a fence there's a style if anyone has walked up um, from Arnfield, where the Seven Falls are, and continued the path up onto Tintwistle Nar. They'll know the style that we're talking about. But just the other side of this, there were um, three hurricanes that crashed here. Yep, that's correct. So the, the hurricane was one of the fighters that uh, took part in the Battle of Britain. Uh, the, these three aircraft were built much later in the war mm. and were being used by a training unit out near Chester. And it was an intermediate step and in the, the training scheme that all pilots went through before becoming fully fledged 
airmen and they were on a cross-country flight from RAF Calvary and they, the free aircraft flew up the Longendale Valley uh, but on the north side of the valley and flew into the hillside in formation uh, while it was covered in cloud. I mean, and and the, the two Belgian pilots have a, a very interesting backstory in that they um, managed to escape the Germans. Um, this happened uh, in World War Two, and then they were detained in a, um, a notorious Spanish um, prisoner of war camp. Got out of that, managed to get to England. Uh, somehow convinced the RAF to take them on board to become fighter pilots because they wanted to get the Germans back. Um, and they had to learn English by going to watch BBC TV shows and going to the cinema and dances and things. And they'd almost completed their training when this crash happened. And in fact, um, the the kind of, um, you know, the regiment that they were part of ended up disbanding several weeks later. But it was said to be a, a real tragedy to the particular regiment that this had happened. I mean, I think one of them, um, apparently he was, was this the, the chap who was always humming the song Stardust? Uh, that's it. Hang on. I've got some snow over the bit that I need to read. Um, Marion had earned the nickname Stardust because of the obsession with the dance tune of the name. And when he wasn't playing the record, he was whistling or humming the tune. And in fact, I went and Googled this. It was, um, I think it was an old jazz tune. Um, I went and listened to it online last night Ah, just to go and see it. I've never heard it. Well, that's what I thought. And I was like... You know, 1945, Stardust, I googled it, and there was a, a famous jazz tune that came out in 1927, but someone did a different version in 1945. Yeah. Well, there you go. The things that you learn. <laughs> Every day's a school day. Yeah, sat in the snow, tint with some, nah, I mean, goodness me. The other, um, there was another chap, um, which... Uh, uh, Hugh Allen Jones, Flight Officer Hugh Allen Jones, who was... Um, a pilot, he was flying solo, and he it pretty much all went wrong for him when he set off. By the sound of things, he lost his uh, his uh, team as soon as he got to the clouds. Couldn't find them, but it turned out there was another group of um, planes which had set off, and so he ended up joining them in formation. Then they hit the cloud bank and they said, hang on a sec, I think we need to do a 180 here. Let's go left, 180. And he was number two in the formation. And when they emerged out the clouds, he wasn't there. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. They'd flown into cloud and most of the aircraft got out of the cloud. And it's thought that uh, Flight Officer Jones had uh, lost control of the aircraft in cloud and the aircraft had rolled over and then spun into the top of the hill. And we went to um, we went to see that earlier on, didn't we? At the very top, um, of which there is um, a clear memorial. In fact, there's a fence um, which you can walk. It's uh, it's the Orange Path. What did you say the Orange Path is again on an OS map? Uh, it's a concessionary right of way. Okay. Uh, it doesn't mean it's there on the ground. Uh, the path on the ground as it exists. <laughs> Is mostly is, is, no, is nowhere near as straight as the line on the map. We can tell you that because we fell down many holes in the heather. It's definitely one that you need to have ankle boots on. 
Um, there was uh, another um, crash, which was at Rhodes Hill, and we walked over the other side to find the remains of that. That was a little bit more problematic for us to find, but we found something. And in fact, one of the crosses had fallen over and um, we lifted it up and replanted it in the ground uh, as part of the memorial. When we lifted it up, there was a cross shape in the grass um, from where the snow hadn't fallen on that bit. But on this particular um, plane, many people... Um, died on this one. Do you want to give an account of what happens with the Rhodes Hill? Yeah, so uh, it was the night of the 20th into 21st of December 1948 and seven RAF airmen were on a cross-country navigation flight from RAF Lindholm near Doncaster which is uh, it's now the site of one of the, the many prisons around Doncaster oh. out in Hatfield Moors and uh, they'd flown over to the western side of the Pennines and were flying back eastwards at low level and they they flew into uh, the area that's called Rhodes Hill mm. just north of Tintwistle-Nar yeah. and uh, all seven of the crew were killed uh, one of them died of his injuries shortly after the crash but uh, yeah none of them survived Wow I mean I think this is the one that was it the Bagshaws from Tintwistle um, went to uh, they they'd heard a bang and they went up to go and see whether they could help. It was a dad and four sons who went up to go and see if help and and um, they tried to help a couple who hadn't died upon impact, but they didn't survive um, from their injuries. Um, and I think interestingly, uh, one of the stories that Ron Collier talks about is um, their boss who was leader of this particular crew and he wasn't on the plane that day in fact he had got married the week before and had been on his honeymoon and he opened um, the the newspaper the Daily Herald to find a report about the crash and saw all the names written there and suddenly realised that these were his crew and they'd all been at his wedding the week before and it was him as soon as he kind of walked through the door back into work after the honeymoon who was told to come over to Hollingworth to come and identify the bodies of his crew which must have been awful you know yeah it must have been for him uh, to 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 live and work with six other air crew yeah and 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 no people not there yeah um, I, when I was looking up the Bagshaws of Timpwistle, I was looking into the history of that, and um, the name Bagshaw came up in a Glossop Chronicle article. And one of the sons who must have gone up to that crash site that day was called Neville. I think he was about 14, either 12 or 14 years old. He was in the paper only a couple of months before because he'd won a prize at a, a Tim Whistle Victory Day party. And there was a picture of him and all of his friends, all of his school class in the paper. So it's amazing how when you start to look a little bit closer at the names of where are these people and, you know, what happened to them and um, could join the dots, I suppose. I mean, there was one of the crash, which, um, you know, we've walked from Armfield Farm today. It's where we met and, and hiked up here. There was another crash which happened in Armfield as well. But this is after the war. This was, I think, like 1951. Yeah. And a young chap on this one. Yep. So he was a, a volunteer airman uh, flying at weekends uh, with a small unit at Barton Aerodrome. Mm-hmm. Uh the, that unit disbanded a few years later and uh, he got disorientated in the cloud uh, he was flying a de Havilland Chipmunk which was a small two-seat trainer aircraft mm-hmm. only flew at a low speed 
and uh, he flew into the hill. But well, fortunately for him, uh, he wasn't uh, wasn't seriously hurt. Uh, but the aircraft did turn over, and it trapped him in the cockpit for a little while. I mean, it says that he was hanging upside down in the cockpit for several hours. He could hear and smell the sound of aviation fuel leaking, and was trying to get out before he was worried it might set on fire. I mean, I can't, it's like that stuff of nightmares. Oh, it, it definitely is uh, to be surrounded by very flammable liquid. Yeah. Uh, it. I think it spurred him on to uh, dig, dig his way out through the peat, and he, he, he dug a just about man-sized hole through through the soft peat, squirmed his way out, and uh, walked walked off the hill. And then, then he kind of went and knocked on uh, the door of um, uh, a lady who was just tidying up after tea. It said in one of the reports, um, uh, was her name Mrs. Thompson? I'm trying to remember what her name was, but anyway, it was she was just tidying up after tea, clearing the table. And there's a 24-year-old chap called Harry who's knocking on the door in quite some shock. Um, and apparently the, the police came from as far as Staley Bridge and they went up to try and find the, uh, the site of the crash um, to see, you know, whether anything needed doing. But they couldn't find it. They had to abandon the search and go and uh, go back in the morning after to go and um, to go and find it. And I understand there's really not a lot to find of that one because it got cleared off the moor pretty quickly. Yeah, the aircraft was more or less in one piece after the crash, so it was very easy just to turn it back over and drag it off. A few years ago, there were one or two tiny little bits left. Mm. It was more a case of matching up a photograph that had been taken by an officer from Barton the day after the crash to say, it was sat there on that peat bank, but there's nothing there anymore. (laughs) And uh, after that, the the pilot, after he finished his... uh, I think he was at university at the time. Mm-hmm. He uh, he ended up emigrating to Australia. Really? Uh, yeah. I wonder if he actually flew a plane again. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, he he did contact me several years ago. and uh, I don't recall him mentioning flying since. <laughs> uh, actually piloting aircraft since. Yeah. Well, he'd obviously have to... Maybe he got the ship to Australia just to be mm. safe. <laughs> I mean, um, you also run a website... Um, do you want to kind of mention um, the website for people who may be interested in reading more about this too? Yeah, so uh, the website that I set up about plane crashes is called Peak District uh, Air Crashes, uh, peakdistrictaircrashes.co.uk. I set that up best part of 20 years ago. And it does it details not just the crash sites in the Peak District, but uh, other high ground sites that I've visited throughout the British Isles. Mm-hmm. And uh, then more recently sort of branched out into taking people on guided walks to sites uh, that's linked from that site as well wow i mean i, I guess and that is reassuring because i've got to say i've tried to come and visit some of these sites before and to no avail you know i i only really got into basic map reading a year ago so it really does help when you whip out the um the compass and a map and you know what you're doing and you know what you're looking for um, so I would definitely say, if you can, then go on one of uh, Alan's guided walks because it will save you a lot of bother. What do you kind of hope to do with, with the guided walks then? And, and what kind of fitness should people be if they go on a walk like this? So to go on a walk like this, you, you need to have a moderate level of fitness. Certainly be able to get up, up and down hills on rough paths. Hmm. It's certainly not taking a walk along the high street on a nice tarmac pavement. But anyone with a, a moderate to good level of fitness is more than capable of doing doing a hill walk. 
and uh, you just have to be prepared to be maybe a bit wet and miserable yeah, yeah. and I suppose on the Glossop Mountain um, rescue site there are kind of uh, some advice about maybe what to wear what to do uh, if you get yourself in trouble and how to what to take and how to prepare I guess for these kind of walking in these kind of conditions and these hills yeah so today I'd recommend that you carry several layers with you including a waterproof outer layer uh, bring some food, uh, maybe a hot drink with you. Uh, carry a torch as well. It's, uh, once it goes dark up here, it's easy to end up walking in big circles and getting very lost. Mm. Uh, have a map and compass, and know how, and you have to know how to use them. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the key thing is knowing how to use them. And there are so many different day trips where people, you know, mountain leaders do these kind of courses that teach you how to kind of do map reading that I think it's really important that people should learn that skill. You know, it's no longer a good idea to just rely on your phone. And certainly if you're walking up here, don't rely on things like Google Maps. It's no good in the, on the top of the moorland. I mean, the, the reservoirs are behind us, but there's no chance we're going to see them today. This is a lovely vantage point that, you know, on a clear day, you can can even see Manchester uh, the skyline in the distance uh, you know on sunny days you see the haze over Manchester and uh, the hills um, all the way back sometimes when it's super clear even back to what kinder I imagine in the far distance uh, North Wales really yeah uh, I mean I have to take your word for it because right now I can see the style and maybe a bit of Arnfield's more I guess that is there isn't yeah. it in front of us and there's a there's already not much more so we've taken a few photos of our walk but I, I hope you kind of forgive us that this hasn't been kind of one that you can kind of walk and follow with us just because of the conditions it was easier to find somewhere a bit less windy and a bit safer to kind of um sit down so i i think over the next few days i will enjoy being back on uh, pavements I think my microphone, which is absolutely covered in snow, it is not waterproof whatsoever, will appreciate walking down the high street of Hadfield. In the next couple of days, I'll be walking with an archaeologist uh, looking at stonemason marks around uh, Hadfield. And on, uh, the day after that, I'll be talking about mills, the various mill owners and mill families of Hadfield and Padfield. So pray for less snow pray for something a bit warmer and uh, apologies for lots of sniffing but it's mighty cold and uh, such is life when you record a podcast outside in the peak district well at any time of the year i imagine uh, all the links to some of the things that alan's talking about here and um yeah go go and find out a little bit more and uh here's hoping harry uh, has better climates in Australia than uh, perhaps that day in 1951 when he crashed into the side of the moor just to the left of us. Bye for now.